And as we come to chapter 31, we looked at Hezekiah last week, just two chapters, just his amazing life and how he's just the greatest of kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. Recalling now that the kingdom of Israel became divided in 931 BC when Solomon stepped into eternity. And then in 722 BC, the Assyrians took away the 10 tribes in the north and relocated them throughout Mesopotamia, that part of the Middle East. And then they eventually were going to come after Judah. They, they, were, they were a powerful people and they were an ambitious people. And so they were coming toward Judah. And during that time, Hezekiah came to power, phenomenal king, did many great things, maybe probably the greatest king of the, the, the three great ones are Hezekiah, Hezekiah, Josiah, and Jehoshaphat. They're definitely the three best ones after David. But uh, I don't know, the more I look at Hezekiah, particularly in how his life is recorded for us in Chronicles last week and tonight, it is just so impressive. And if you've been with me and us together with all these other kings that were, you know, okay or evil or good, but kind of didn't finish well, he is just so refreshing to be looking at his life, Hezekiah. So with that background, he had come to power. He immediately reopened this temple after what his dad had done, closed it down. He reopened it. He reinstituted the priesthood. He stirred everybody up. He got them going. He called the Passover and it was a special Passover, a month late, if you will, and the people came, and it was amazing, and God honored it. It was a little hectic, but God totally blessed it, and it was a beautiful thing. And the people went home blessed of the Lord, and something like that had not happened since the time of Solomon. So it had been literally not just decades, but a couple of centuries since something that so special. All of this with the threat looming of the Assyrian Empire, who had yet to be stopped by anybody coming their way, because a reminder, when Hezekiah came to power, the first three years was the siege of the Samaria, Samaria in the north, and they're being taken away. Then the, the, the next three years was, here they come after him. So he, as he came to power, it was just this dark cloud looming over everybody that even though he's a great king and good things are happening, there's a very real threat rising. Just like if you lived in Europe in the late 20s and really the early 30s and you saw the rise of Nazism and Hitler you'd be like this is not good and that's what it was like for Judah at this time so we pick it up in chapter 31 and we read this now when that Passover and all these things were finished all Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah and broke the sacred pillars in pieces cut down the wooden images and threw down the high places and the altars from all Judah Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh, until they had utterly destroyed them all, then all the children of Israel returned to their own cities, every man to his possession. So that's kind of like really more connected to the previous chapter. It's the unfinished business. They praised the Lord, had the Passover, but they hadn't really eradicated the false worship places, and here they fully did, and they finished the job, they sealed the fruit, and completed that process. So now that brings us to verse 2. And Hezekiah appointed the divisions of the priests and the Levites according to their divisions, each man according to his service. The priests and the Levites were burnt offerings and peace offerings to serve, to give thanks, and to praise in the gates of the camp of the Lord. The king also appointed a portion of his possessions for the burnt offerings for the morning and evening burnt offerings, the burnt offerings for the Sabbaths, and the new moons and the, the set feast, as it is written in the law of the Lord, that is, book of Deuteronomy, Exodus. Moreover, he commanded the people who dwelt in Jerusalem to contribute support for the priests and the Levites that they might devote themselves to the law of the Lord, 
As soon as the commandment was circulated, the children of Israel brought in abundance the first fruits of grain and wine, oil and honey, and of all the produce of the field. And they brought in abundance the tithe of everything. And the children of Israel and Judah who dwelt in the cities of Judah brought the tithe of ox and sheep, also the tithe of holy things which were consecrated to the Lord, their God, and, and they, laid them, they laid it in heaps. In the third month they began laying them in heaps and they finished in the seventh month. And when Hezekiah and the leaders came and saw the heaps, they blessed the Lord and his people Israel. Then Hezekiah questioned the priests and the Levites concerning the heaps. And Azariah, the chief priest from the house of Zadok, answered him and said, Hey, since the people began to bring the offerings to the house of the Lord, we have had enough to eat and have plenty left for the Lord has blessed his people. And what is left is great abundance. Now Hezekiah commanded them to prepare rooms in the house of the Lord, and they prepared them. Then they faithfully brought in the offerings, the tithes, and the dedicated things. Conaniah the Levite had charge of them, and Shimei, his brother, was next. Jehiliel, Azahiah, Nahath, Asahel, Jeremoth, Josabad, Eliel, Ishmachiah, Mahath, and Beniah were overseers under the hand of Conaniah and Shimei, his brother, at the commandment of Hezekiah the king, and Azariah, the ruler of the house of God. Kor, the son of Imnah, the Levite, keeper of the east gate, was over the freewill offerings to God to distribute the offerings of the Lord and the most holy things. And under him were Eden, Miniman, Jeshua, Shemaiah, Amariah, Shechaniah, his faithful assistants in the cities of the priests, to distribute allotments for their brethren by divisions to the great as well as the small. Besides those males from three years old and up who were written in the genealogy, they distribute to everyone who entered the house of the Lord his daily portion for the work of his service by his division. And the priests who were written in the genealogy according to their father's house and the Levites from 20 years old and up according to their work by their divisions. And to all who were written in the genealogies, their little ones and their wives, their sons and daughters, the whole company of them, for in their faithfulness, they sanctify themselves in holiness. Also for the sons of Aaron the priest, who were in the fields of the common lands of their cities, in every single city there were men who were designated by name to distribute portions to all the males among the priests and to all who were listed in genealogies among the Levites. Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good and right and true before the Lord his God. And in every work that he began in the service of the house of God, in the law and in the commandment to seek his God, he did it with all of his heart, so he prospered. That body of Christ is a beautiful chapter. It's just all, like, again, we're three for three with Hezekiah. Like, it's just three chapters, and it's just wonderful. It's a, it's a smooth read. It's pleasant. It's encouraging. And it's edifying. Now, the context is the priesthood. To refresh our memories, there when God made the covenant with Israel about 700 years prior at Mount Sinai, of the 12 tribes of Israel, because Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob has 12 sons, those 12 sons then become a tribe, each of those 12 sons, the Levites were set apart to be servants of the Lord. They had the priesthood. So remember, the Levites... That was their job. Their inheritance, when they came into the promised land under Joshua after 40 years, 
their inheritance wasn't really any personal possessed land like the other 11 tribes. They got common lands to provide, you know, to grow produce and gardens and stuff like that. But their whole vocation was to serve the Lord, to represent the Lord as they were scattered like salt with the church in our community to represent the Lord among the people. That's what their, their responsibility was. In fact, the Lord said to them, I am your inheritance. So they had a little, they had like extra access to the Lord. Like they, they had a greater responsibility. And in that priesthood, the, you know, the, the tribe of Levi was subdivided by three, the Moronites, Gershonites, and the Kohathites. And only one was the actual priesthood, the Kohathites. The Levites were the other ones. So when you see priests and Levites, again, it's interchangeable. A priest comes from the Levites, but not all Levites do the priestly duties. That's why you find that distinction. And in establishing the priesthood, God designed that they be provided for by the people. So thus the tithe and all the offerings. So the burnt offerings, the trespass offerings, because they're, they're all offerings that represented Christ. The shed blood of animals for sin represents Christ dying on the cross for our sins. That's what they, it all, every animal sacrifice, all the offerings ultimately are shadows of things to come that Christ one way or another fulfills. For example, you had grain offerings, and what did Jesus say? I am the bread of life, right? So, like, they all are a shadow to teach that our total necessity of sustenance, our spirit, mind, and body, is fully in the Lord. We are made by Christ, for Christ, and in, and in him we consist. Everything, that's why he's the author and finisher of our faith. It's all about Jesus. So when we think about these ties and this priesthood, we just got to remember, this is Jesus in this and over this. And these men would receive the barbecue, if you will, <laughs> you know, Bob's barbecue, if you like, and they'd, they would have this meat supplied to them and various other offerings that would then provide them sustenance for their families, their wives, their children, so on and so forth. So that's our background to all this. Something beautiful about the Old Testament is when God initiated the priesthood and they built the tabernacle, they took an offering from the people in the wilderness, and the people gave above and beyond what was needed. They had to tell the people, stop giving. That's pretty special track record for Israel. When they established everything, they gave above and beyond that they had to be turned away. Now, try to imagine any ministry turning people away who are giving above and beyond for their ministry. Most fruitful ministries would know exactly what to do with it and how to multiply it. But in the context of the wilderness wandering, there was a need for no more. Then here we see a similar situation where this is the greatest revival probably, apart from David setting up the temple to be built and Solomon building the temple, there's really no comparison to this. This is amazing. Like this is, like I said earlier, this hasn't happened for centuries. And Hezekiah, he did everything right with the Lord. They opened the temple, reinstituted the Passover. That hadn't happened for years. Then they tore down everything offensive to the Lord. They set themselves up for blessings. And then he said, now, just keep everything going with the law of the Lord and the word of God. What God wants us to do is now we need to receive the offerings to provide for the priesthood because these guys now are doing this instead of what they were doing back in the day when my dad closed the temple and everyone was doing their own thing to figure out how they can provide for their family with their side hustle. But now they're fully in ministry again and it's a responsibility of the people to provide for them. And it says that he gave the command I think I speak for all of us. We like suggestions, not commands. I like the, as they say in all the sales books, you know, 
we like to decide to buy, but we don't like to be sold anything. I mean, any book on sales will tell you that. You're never, you're never, you know, you're not forcing someone to buy something. You're, you're helping them decide that they want to, to receive it. That's, that's the key in sales, is that someone understands, like, oh, no, it is a good deal, right? Like, when you go look at a car, you just, when you go look at a car, the first thing you want to tell the salesperson, I, I'm just looking, right? No one likes to be forcing anything. Not, not in the world and not even in spiritual things because it's grace that moves us and it's the spirit that moves us. And that makes us beautiful because they were under the command technically in the law that this is how it works. But they didn't give a pushback. They're like, yeah, you're right. They didn't say, I can go to church whenever I want to. I can, you know, I can, we, do, we do church in our house the way we do it. They didn't come up with that kind of stuff that everyone always comes up with. You know, so when you see something like don't forsake the assembly of the brethren, in Hebrews, you're like, oh, we just, you know, we're our own thing. And, you know, as a pastor, after 35 years, you know, you just don't mean like, whatever, okay, do your own thing. See in, see in glory. Like, if that's how you see it, that's how you see it. They didn't, they didn't give any pushback. Not only did they accept the commandment, they embraced it, and they brought, they brought, the, they brought the first fruits. And by the way, first fruits is a big deal. We grew some vegetables this summer. Not a lot of them. But I can assure you, we, we really enjoyed Jennifer's tomatoes and her cucumbers. It's really special. That was our first fruits. Right? Like, you understand, like, first fruits is a big deal, especially if it's your sustenance. First fruits is a big deal. So the first fruits, the tithe, and they brought the grain, and they brought all that, and they brought it abundantly. Now, tithe, of course, the word means a tenth. And so God set up the tithe, and before we move on from this, I just want to remind us something about the tithe, because God is, is interested in a loving relationship with us, not a legal relationship. The tithe properly understood is a loving relationship. The tithe misunderstood is a legal relationship. In the book of Malachi, God said, if you bring in the tithes, put me to the test, I will bless you above and beyond anything you can imagine. That's a loving relationship. But Jesus rebuked the Pharisees because they tithed mint and cumin and such things like that. So there were sticklers with the legality of tithing a tenth of their spies, uh, spice. So they would tithe a tenth of their spice. That's like going to the spice store over by, you know, the, the mall over there by Calvary Chapel. That spice store that used to be there. And we'd get, like, really good spices. Like, you know, like, how do you, like, you cut it like one tenth? Here it is, Lord, that's yours. That's what they did. So they made it a legal relationship. And it made it about them, and they trusted themselves by they tied their spice or something. But as Jesus said, they neglected the weightier matters of God's law, justice and service and humility and empathy, compassion. The tithe is to our benefit, even as the Sabbath is to our benefit. Remember when the Pharisees made a legal thing about the Sabbath? Oh, you're breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus said the Sabbath wasn't made, uh, man wasn't made for the Sabbath, legal relationship, but the Sabbath was made for a man, loving relationship, to have rest. God would make, would tell us, some of us are workaholics, and you need to turn it off once a week for a day. You just got to turn it all off, the cell phone, the laptop, everything, and just go walk on the bike path and go surfing at a Doheny or San Owen. Just turn it off. That's what you need to do. The, the Sabbath was for our benefit, as is the tithe. God doesn't need our money. But the tithe is for us because there's a couple things I've learned about tithing that, that are really beneficial to us. Tithing reminds us that everything that we have is the Lord's. 
when we give according to his standard. Tithing reminds us that it's all temporal and we don't get to keep it anyways. So therefore, tithing reminds us of eternity. And the more that we can learn to be generous in our time and energy and resources in life as a whole, it's going to be better on the day of the Lord and it's going to be better in eternity. And we'll have greater dividends in time after we step into eternity. Remember what Jesus said when the sheep and the goats were brought before him in Matthew 25 on the day of the Lord. He said, those who were the sheep, he said, enter to the joy of your Lord. Those who went and visited my friends in prison, who fed these people and who nurtured these people. When you did it to them, you did it to me. But when you didn't do it to them, you didn't do it to me. Everything is fluid. It all gets redistributed. And as it comes into our lives, whatever we have, the first fruits, the abundance, it's a test. It's all a test. It's a test. And here's the thing about possessions that I've learned. Either the Lord possesses them or they possess us. Either the Lord possesses our possessions or they possess us. And once the people made everything right with the Lord, it says that Ahaziah said, Azariah said, for the Lord has blessed his people and what is left is his great abundance. So it's not even about like holding, it's about releasing. And it's about total obedience in the things of the kingdom and the things that really matter. And as I've been saying with my good friend Keith Randolph, it's in the last year when I realized, I've been saying for 34 years in ministry, you can't take it with you. And this last year I figured out you can. You can take it with you. And I've been saying this, you can take it with you when you sow it before you go. If your life is sowing, 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 your time, your energy, your resources for other people, because humanity and the purpose of your life is about serving others to the glory of Jesus Christ. That is your purpose once you're saved. We're created to serve one another. The servant of all is greatest in the kingdom, body of Christ. And we serve with our time, our energy, and our resources. And Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. God promises the blessing. Now, we are told in the universe of cause and effect that the one who sows bountifully reaps bountifully. The one who sows sparingly reaps sparingly. So the tithe is to our benefit. It's, it's like my daughter Hannah and her, her husband Nate, they're on staff at the Calvary Chapel in Vero Beach. Pastor Jim's father-in-law is Mike Oshner, who is the COO at Billabong for Bob Hurley, and then the COO at Hurley for Bob Hurley. He's a genius with money and genius with money and investing. He sat the entire staff down a couple of years ago and said, this is what you need to do in your 20s. You set aside X amount of your income and these things, and this is how the compound effects works, works for your money, and this will be worth $1.2 million by the time you're 53. And Hannah's like, sign me up. So Hannah and Nate have been sewing that way, and they're, you know, if they live to see that day, good for them. If not, that's okay too, but that was to their benefit. Mike Oshner telling the staff, this, like Grandpa Mike saying, this is what you want to do. That was to their benefit. No one ever did that for me. Not my mother, not my father, not any of my pastors. And all that I've learned, I've learned between me and the Holy Spirit. And what I've learned is this. What you put out is what you get back. And if you sow bountifully, you'll reap bountifully. And I've sowed more in 10 years than I ever had before, and I've reaped more in 10 years. I joke about this. I've learned how to give away cars. I haven't learned how to give away real estate. But you never know what God might have for me in the, the back end. You know? It's like, 
It's like, people give me cars, and I, we give cars away. Like, wait a second, like, this is our, and I'm like, wait, if this works with cars, it probably works with real estate. Hmm, I don't know, though. We're working on that one, okay? But you see, the tithe is for you. The tithe is God saying, hey, children, I want you to understand that this is to your benefit. It's not God's ever going broke. It's to our benefit because what you put out is what you get back. So it's not even about a tithe. It's about your total life. And by the way, I, I love what it says about Hezekiah in this last verse. And it is, isn't it awesome, 20 and 21? Oh, my goodness, these verses. Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good and right and true before the Lord is God. Now, that's a wonderful summary of our lives. And in every work that he began in the service of the house of God, in the law, in the commandment, to seek his God, he did it with all of his heart, so he prospered. He wasn't worried about splitting his spices in categories of tenths. <laughs> we already saw he gave all of his own burnt offerings to lead the people. Most of the world believes that you should do 10% of giving to something or somebody, regardless of their philosophies or world religions. But let me tell you, that's the difference between us and them. Because Jesus is Lord. And when we're sowing financially to the body of Christ, we are sowing for the gospel, we are sowing for the Great Commission, and we're sowing to that which he loves more than anything in the universe, his bride, the church. So even if you think some ministries you gave to maybe like kind of did something weird or crashed and burned, whatever, or anything, when you did it unto, Jesus said, and when you did it unto me, you did it unto, you know, when you did it unto them, you did it unto me, and we do things as unto the Lord. And as I have said many, many times in my own life, especially to young people, there's never enough money to get married, so get married. There's never enough money to have children, so have lots of children. And there's never enough money to step out in faith and fully go for it with the ministry. So step out in faith and fully go for it in the ministry. And I'll add to that. There's never enough money to tithe, so therefore make sure you tithe. Yes and amen. It's to your benefit. It's, it's to your benefit. That's what you realize. It's to your benefit. Hezekiah, with all of his heart, went after things of the Lord. And we all know this. If the Lord doesn't have your money, he doesn't have your heart. <laughs> Follow the time trail and follow the money trail. What you make time for, that's what you're living for. What you spend your money on, that's what you're living for. It's not a mystery. Now we read on chapter 32. It's to your benefit. All in. It all gets left behind. Chapter 32. After these deeds of faithfulness, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came and entered Judah. And he encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to... Uh, win them over to himself. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that his purpose was to make war against Jerusalem, he consulted with his leaders and commanders to stop water from the wells, the springs that were outside the city that helped them, that would help him. Thus many people, they gathered together who stopped all the springs in the brook that ran through the land, saying, why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? And he strengthened himself. He built up the wall that was broken, raised up, up the towers. He built another wall outside. Also, he repaired the Milo in the city of David, and he made weapons and shields in abundance. Then he set military captains over the people, gathered them together to him in the open square for the, uh, of the city gate, gave them encouragement, saying, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid nor dismayed before the king of Assyria, nor before all the multitude that is with him. For there is more with us than with him. With him is the arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God. 
to help us and to fight our battles. And the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. After this, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, sent his servants to Jerusalem, but he and all of his forces with him were laying siege to Lachish. That's another major city in the region. Uh, for Hezekiah, king of Judah, and to all of Judah who were in Jerusalem, saying, Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, in what you do, in what, in what do you trust that you remain under siege in Jerusalem? Does not Hezekiah persuade you to give yourselves over to die by famine and by thirst, saying, The Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? Has not the, has not the same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars, commanding Judah and Jerusalem, saying, You shall worship before one altar and burn incense on it? which is exactly what God prescribed in the law, by the way. Verse 13. Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the people of other lands? Were the gods of the nations of those lands in any way able to deliver their, their lands out of my hand? Who was there among all the gods of those nations that my father fathers utterly destroyed that could deliver his people from my hand that your God should be able to deliver you from my hand? Now, therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, persuade you like this. And do not believe him, for no god of any nation or kingdom was able to deliver his people from my hand or the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you from my hand? <laughs> Verse 16. Furthermore, his servants spoke against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. Oh, keep digging that ditch for yourself right there, buddy. Verse 17. He also wrote letters to revile the God of Israel and to speak against them. Man, sounds like mainstream media. Saying, as the gods of the nations of other lands have not delivered their people from my hand, so the God of Hezekiah will not deliver his people from my hand. Then they called out with a loud voice in Hebrew to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to frighten them and trouble them that they might take the city. And they spoke against the God of Jerusalem as against the gods of the people of the earth, the work of men's hands. Now, because of this, King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, that's of course our prophet Isaiah from the Bible, the son of Amos, they prayed and cried out to heaven. Then the Lord sent an angel who cut down every, every mighty man of valor, leader and captain in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned shamefaced to his own land. And when he'd gone into the temple of his God, some of his own offspring struck him down with the sword there. Thus the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from the hand of others, and guided them on every side. And many brought gifts to the Lord at Jerusalem, and presents to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all nations thereafter. This happened. It is so supernatural, and it is almost like a, like an Avengers kind of movie, where you have like you know the aliens come, or like Thor, and they come from a portal or something. But I am telling you, a supernatural being, an angel, came from the other dimension of eternity, and he came on Jerusalem on this day with 185,000 Assyrians, the mightiest, most powerful nation in human history up to this time, the most ruthless, brutal people who had never been stopped in anything they had attempted to do in the last 150 years prior to this. And that angel showed up in one night, and he slew them all. And we know from the account from Kings that the Judah woke up in the morning and saw all the dead body. Just all the dead bodies, a battlefield. Couple things in this story. You got to appreciate Hezekiah, as we say, filling his water bottles. Remember, Jesus said, fill the, fill the bottles, you know, and then I'll turn it to wine. And we often say, hey, we do our part and we pray to God to do his part. That, that unison of human effort 
to, to do as best we can, as best we understand at any given time, but ultimately trusting in the Lord is the one who's really going to bring it to pass. Hezekiah, if you don't know much about the history of the Assyrians, their stuff is displayed in museums off and on throughout the world at any given time. They made sure everyone knew who they were, what they did. They, so we'll see in the next chapter, they put the hooks in the ears and hooks in the nose of the people they captured. They disfigured them. So when you saw those terrorists in the last 20 years when they disfigured people in the Middle East, like cut their noses off and their ears, there's nothing new under the sun. That's what the Assyrians did in, in, of the fiercest brutality. They were geniuses, almost like the Prussians and the Germans coming out of the 1800s. If you go back to the 1700s, the Germans and Prussians, they were the leaders in all science. They were the le leaders in military armaments, particularly in the 1800s, when all the you know, industrial age was unfolding. They were a juggernaut. They were to be feared. They were so ahead of the game. And again, remember, when, we, when World War II was done, those Nazi scientists came to America, and they put our stuff on the moon. They were geniuses. Somehow they were just way ahead. They were superior human beings, literally, culturally. But God catches the wise and own craftiness. Well, the Assyrians were the same way. Their, the way they built a siege mound had never been even precedent by anything by the Egyptians or other previous empires. And so efficient was, it, was the way they did it, it was copied for over 1,500 years after this time. They created a means by which they laid siege that went for millennium. They invented the runner, the news runner from station to station to make news get out as quickly as they possibly. It was even again until the late 1800s, the means, what they established, how you communicate with runners, was in place in the Middle East almost right up until World War I, what they established. And it's accredited to the Assyrians. And agriculturally, in the people they displaced, they were extremely efficient in their agriculture in producing food. So they had technology, they had military advancements, and they had uh, prosperity of their material gain. And until they came to Jerusalem, they were undefeated. So I leave you with this thought. When you're facing Assyrians in your life, the encouraging words of Hezekiah, with him is the arm of flesh. That is what the Holy Spirit says to any human being, even any demonic entity, that would threaten you. Because we're the Lord's, and the battle is the Lord's. So what an incredible statement. With him is to have that kind of faith and that kind of perspective. As Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, big God, little problem, little adversary. Or little God, big adversary. You have to decide. It can't be both. With him, the most powerful ruler that anyone ever seen in human history at this time. With him is the arm of flesh, with us is the Lord God to help us and fight our battles. It's all about perspective, isn't it? Wow. I mean, he's, he's, they're clogging the wells and the springs and everything. They're fortifying the walls. And I mean, like, this is like Lord of the Rings. The orcs are coming by uh, an innumerable multitude. They're just coming. And it's just like, <clears throat> you know, it's like, what? Like, and he's just doing everything. But his confidence isn't in his walls that he's building or even the wells that he's stopping. His confidence is in the Lord and his perspective to properly understand the situation, which is so crucial for all of us in the obstacles and battles that we face in our life. It's all about the right perspective, the perspective of faith, which means it's all about the input. 
So how, whatever you put in your mind shapes your thinking. And as a man thinketh, so he becomes. Proverbs. As a woman thinketh, so she becomes. So if you're filling your mind with scriptures, the person of Christ, the promises of God, the coming glory, the day of the Lord, then that's your worldview. That's your input. Now, the world wants to give you input. They want to give you input based upon how they see the world. Governments want to give you input. Your neighbors at war with God want to give you input. The demonic entities that hate you and your family and everything about you, they want to give you input. And that input is to create anxiety and fear and unbelief and pride and arrogance and ignorance. The input of the Holy Spirit and the totality of God's word in our life is life and light and truth and a moral compass and sure promises from here to eternity surrounding the person and the work and the promises of Jesus Christ. The way you bring down Sennacherib in all of his might is the right input of God's word, God's law, and having done everything you can, as best you know how in your life, to make your life right with that, which is exactly what Hezekiah did for the last two and a half chapters. Three chapters. That's what he did. So blesses the man who delights himself in the law of the Lord. Psalm 1. And then he meditates day and night. The woman, same thing. So he had the right input. So he had the right thoughts as a man thinketh. And therefore he had the right perspective. And therefore he spoke the right words based upon faith and promises. And thus his words had power and life to those who followed him and heard him. For we read right here in this text that as he spoke to the people, they were encouraged. He encouraged the entire nation by the confidence of his faith based upon the sureness of what he believed and put in his mind. So don't be unsettled and go around other people and unsettle them. Be established in the Lord. Be established what your input is. Be established in your worldview and your convictions and your faith. And then speak that with truth and conviction and bring life and light to the people who hear you. This is the key to life, body of Christ, WG. We need to speak those promises, not as if there's something super hocus-pocus with it, but because they're true. And as we take those things in, and as we meditate on those things and we speak those things, we release power and life and truth in this universe to the glory of Christ for the coming kingdom of Christ. And we strengthen others in doing so. So our words are going to build up or they're going to tear down. And, and Hezekiah, with such insurmountable odds against them, he spoke these things, and the people were strengthened. He, he convinced them. And he wasn't convincing them of something delusional. He was convincing them of something true. And think about it, Everyone who followed his lead, believed his lead, and they got up that morning, and they looked out there, and there they were, completely wiped out. There's a way that seems right to a man, but then there by his death. And that's the way the Assyrians chose. And with these pompous men being cut down by their own offspring in a, a temple of a false god. We sh what the Bible tells us over and over, never be envious of the wicked. <laughs> never be envious of the wicked. Hezekiah spoke words of truth horizontally to people and strengthened them. And Hezekiah lifted up his cry to heaven vertically and gave it to the Lord. It's a perfect combination. Verse 20. How'd you like to go to pray in the temple with Isaiah too, by the way? That's a juggernaut. King Hezekiah and Isaiah rolling down to the temple to go pray to the Lord? That's what I'm talking about, body of Christ. 
these, it was a mismatch. It was a mismatch. One angel, 185,000 Assyrians in one night, and it happened. Verse 24. Now, in those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death, and he prayed to the Lord, and he spoke to him, and God gave him a sign. That's when the shadow of the sundial went backwards, recorded for us in Kings. But Hezekiah did not repay according to the favor shown him, for his heart was lifted up. Therefore, wrath was looming over him and over Judah and Jerusalem. Then Hezekiah humbled himself uh, for the pride of his heart, he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. Hezekiah had very great riches and honor, and he made himself treasuries for silver, for gold, for precious stone, for spices, for shields, for all kinds of desirable items, storehouses for the harvest of grain, wine and oil, stalls for all kinds of livestock, folds for flocks. Moreover, he provided cities for himself and possessions of flocks and herds in abundance, for God had given him very much property. This same Hezekiah stopped the water outlet of Upper Gihon and brought the water by tunnel to the west side of the city of David. Hezekiah prospered in all his works. However, regarding the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, whom they sent to him to inquire about the wonder that was done in the land, God withdrew from him in order to test him, that he might know all that was in his heart. Now, the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his goodness, indeed, they are written in the vision of Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, and in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. So Hezekiah rested with his fathers, and they buried him in the upper tombs of the sons of David. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem honored him at his death. Then Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. Now, so after all this, we get this back-end story. And this is worth thinking about. What have we seen with many of these kings that were good kings? They, they unravel. The wheels come off in the fourth quarter. The two-minute warning. We've seen these guys, good ones, just make bad decisions. So what's so radical about Hezekiah is, I mean, he got the sign of the, the backward sundial and all that, and that was a test. And I, I mean, we're all human. So like the Lord gives you a great deliverance, and everyone's thinking it's the end of the world, and suddenly you're like, you're like the richest man in Babylon. Like you like it all, it all just it flipped. And it's like, you're now like the, the big man on campus. You're the hero in the Middle East because no one has ever beaten these guys. And like, they don't know how you did it, your prayers or whatever. <laughs> but all they know is this, this, this juggernaut that had never been seen in human history before came to your town and you crushed them. And so everyone's sending you gifts. You'd be like, no matter how humble you are, you'd be like, yeah. You're like angel in the outfield, and you're still like, yeah, yeah. That's how we do it around here, huh? That's how we do it in Judah. Like, I know I'm that way. I'm sure Greg Laurie's tend to be that way. Franklin Graham's tend to be that way. Like, when you have that kind of blessing, see, what's amazing to me is people are prideful over nothing. Like, prisoners are prideful over their bed and their cell because we're just prideful. So how much more prideful are people that really actually accomplish things? They're extremely prideful. It's in our nature to be prideful. And we're told never to touch the glory of the Lord. They always say that to ministers. Hey, don't touch the glory of the Lord. But you're tempted to. I mean, gosh, if I was speaking to 15,000 people at uh, the Honda Center for three nights in a row, I'd be like, like, I'd be cool about it. But somewhere along, I'd be like, what? (laughs) Like, I just have a little, like, you know, like, I'd look at Jennifer and go, like, 
You know, we were like that. So here's the coolest thing about Hezekiah. He was like that. And when God said, don't be like that, he's like, okay, I won't. He's the first guy we see making mistakes in the end, being reproved, and receiving it. Now think about like Uzziah, who's like, I can go in the temple, I can be the king, the priest, and the prophet. No one, get out of my way, get out of my way, I'm going to offer incense, and he gets leprosy, right? No one could stop him. So many of these guys, or how about the foot, you know, the foot melody for, what was it, Asa? <laughs> like, these guys, and Hezekiah's like, he's going like this, and the Lord shows like, what? And it says he humbled himself. And even when the Babylonians came, he showed him all of his wealth, and the Lord's like, hey, they're all going to take it away in about 100 years. But it's not going to happen in your, your lifetime. You know what he said? Well, good for me. <laughs> he, you know, it goes back to what I say. We have our timeline in our generation. It's always about here and now. And even, even, so what I'm saying is, even when Hezekiah turned the ball over or made a mistake, he still was teachable and correctable. Like he still made it right. He's so unique because none of these other guys did that. He's so unique. So it's very encouraging to me, and I hope it's encouraging to you. Hezekiah is just an absolute hero. His son Manasseh is going to come to power. We'll save that for next week. Manasseh comes to power. He's actually a hero in his own way as well, and we'll see that next week when we look at his life. But uh, tonight, it is all belongs to Hezekiah, a true hero in the faith in the Old Testament who was all in for the things of the Lord. And even when he got prideful about it, he received correction and just went forward. And what a, what a glorious life. It's very, well, it says in his death, that last verse, that they honored him at his death. The whole nation. Givers and servants and spiritual leaders are truly honored in their departure. And they can be and they should be. Because people like this truly make the world a better place. Critics and takers, not so much. Yeah? But people who have faith and speak truth and speak life, man, they, you miss people that speak life into you. And you honor them when they're gone. Be inspired, WG. Be inspired.